You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. tell you something. This was a hard message to prepare for because passages like this, it flies directly in the face of people who believe that Jesus is all about just love, grace, and peace. These are the people who believe like Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, that God's love is so great that he'll always accept you no matter what, even if you reject Jesus, that he'll still accept you. Or that book Shack, which is now a major motion picture, right? Which, is, um, which teaches about the universality of love and salvation. That again, Jesus saves everyone no matter what you've done, no matter who you are. Repentance not needed. Recognition of sin unnecessary. Just know that God will love you and save you. doesn't matter what religion you, um, you affirm to. And so people love this view of God. This love of, they love this view of Jesus, which is, you know, the view that a lot of churches have. If, you, if you've been to some of our backrooms, you've seen pictures of Jesus as like the shepherd, right? And um, so this Middle Eastern Jesus has blonde hair and blue eyes, and he's always like hugging kids and petting sheep, right? And so that's the, that's the Jesus we are accustomed to. And that's the, Jesus that, that's the Jesus that many people want to believe in because that type of Jesus doesn't point out our flaws, he doesn't point out our sins. That kind of Jesus doesn't demand repentance from us. He says, you're fine. This new age Jesus who's all about love and acceptance would say to the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 and who was about to get stoned, if you recall, he would say, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. And then so they would end it right there with a big emphatic period. But in actuality, Jesus says, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus is judging the sin. He's saying, stop. It is not good. It is not right. It is not righteous. It is not holy. Stop. And so, yeah, that's the Jesus many people are familiar with. The Jesus that forgives but doesn't demand anything from us because he certainly wouldn't want to change who we are. Because like the saying we all tend to buy into and perpetuate is, you're perfect just the way you are. Say that to your neighbor. You're perfect just the way you are. And it's funny because we know it's not true. But that's not the God of the Bible, and that's not Jesus, at least the way the Bible describes him. When Jesus first came to us, he came to us as the baby, all rosy-cheeked, probably really cute and really plump. But his advent was as a Savior, again, as the one who saves us from sin. But the second advent, the second coming will be different because while Jesus the first time came, he came in humility. The second time he comes, he'll come in glory. He'll come in glory. And in his glory, he will not come as a Savior, not as a tender baby, but instead he'll come as a judge. He will come as a judge. He will rain down his judgment upon the wicked. He will come with a sword coming forth from his mouth, 
holding an iron scepter, and the words King of Kings and the Lord of Lords written on his robe and on his thighs. He will come gloriously. He will come victoriously. He will come to judge the sins, the wickedness. And so judgment, that's what this text is all about. Judgment. And so I have a couple points I want to make. First is this. God will destroy the wicked. Can you say that? God destroys the wicked. Throughout the entire Bible, whenever Sodom is spoken of, it always seems to make this point. Sodom, exhibit A, a wicked, wicked city, a terrible city, a city that's so wicked that God destroyed. Now, let's not try to filter this, okay? When the Bible says Sodom was wicked, it means Sodom was wicked. But here's what's really interesting. Much of the sin of Sodom is actually a pretty common practice today. Now, before I go into that, I want to make a point here to say this. I want you guys to hear me out. When we think of Sodom, the first word that comes to mind is the word homosexuality. This is where I believe churches and Christians and pastors have done more harm than good in an attempt to interpret and apply this text. This text makes it clear that homosexuality was one of the sins. In fact, it may have even been this behavior that became the breaking point. But hear me when I say this. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that homosexuality is the worst of all sins. Because in the eyes of God, sin is sin. Sin is sin. That means the adulterer, the gossiper, the luster, the slander are all just as guilty. In fact, in Ezekiel, God tells us something about Sodom's particular sins. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her sister and her daughters had pride, access of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and did not aid the needy. So get this. Extravagance, arrogance, an apathy against the marginalized, against the impoverished, against the needy. Those things were the beginning of Sodom's downfall. And those things are a common practice today here too. In the book of Luke, we're told that Sodom was guilty of rejecting God's word. And then in Jeremiah, God charged them with adultery, lying, and abetting criminals. And Ezekiel and Judges and 2 Peter describes the homosexual perversions of Sodom, which makes it clear, yes, homosexuality is a sin, but it is by no means the vilest of sins. And here's why we need to stop creating a scale of sin from bad to worse. Because when we say the sin of gossip is not as bad as the sin of adultery, or the sins of, or, or the sins of uh, lust isn't as bad as homosexuality, when we say that, we're attempting to define the sacrifice of Christ on our terms, aren't we? Jesus, you died for this, and you died for this, and you died for that, but you did not die for this. Jesus, you're only gracious enough to save the robber and to save the prostitute and save the tax collector, but not gracious enough to save the homosexual. When we play God and we make up the rules, then we negate the power of the gospel and we take God out of the sea and replace him with us as the judge. Every person here has a table in their life filled with people. You know that? Every person here has a table in their life filled with people, and those people are family and friends and coworkers and, and neighbors and students that we mentor and teach on Sunday school too. But I want, I want every single person here to make sure 
that you always leave a seat open for the prodigal. It's a person who has abandoned you, who has fought with you, who has disagreed with you. It's the person who you hate. It's the person who you just can't understand. It's the person who you've tried helping countless, countless times, praying for, but to no avail. But that seat you see, that seat that must be available in your table, it cannot discriminate because while it may be your table, if you look and notice that who sits in the head is not you, but Christ Jesus. It's Jesus who is sitting at the head of your table. And you should notice then that surrounding him are prodigals, all of them, like yourself. Every man, every woman, every child, every boy and girl from all walks of life who have missed the mark in so many ways and yet by the grace and mercy of our king was restored and given a seat by his side. So let's stop, people. Let's stop redefining of which sins are acceptable and which are not. For the only unforgivable sin is the sin of unbelief, the sin of rejecting the gospel, the sin of denying Christ as Savior, the sin of all sins, unbelief. But if it's not that, if it's not that, then any person on this God-green earth, whether born gay or chooses to be gay, can still be saved by the mighty power of God's grace because we all fall short of the glory of God. We were all born with iniquity. We're all deserving of eternal damnation. We all do what we shouldn't do and we do what we should and we don't do what we should do. You see, none of us would have a fighting chance if it were not for the grace of God who's mighty to save even the worst of all sinners, including me. Praise God that He saved a wretch like us. Who are we to deny grace to others? And so with the wickedness of Sodom from the perversion of sexuality to his apathy towards the needy, God said this, I need to destroy, and he destroyed Sodom. Now I want to touch on a few aspects about God's judgment that I believe the text is revealing to us first is this, God's judgment is sudden. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus says he's coming, to, he's coming to judge the world will be like a flash of lightning from one end of the sky and to the other, and it was no different in Sodom's case because verse 23 says, the sun had risen on the earth, when Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord reigned, okay? Another translation says, suddenly, abruptly, without warning, the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord of out of heaven. Can you just imagine the people of Sodom and Gomorrah that day? They probably just woke up thinking, it's another day. I'm going to go to work. Joking around with my friends, I might go to happy hour, go get drunk, get a little high, do what makes me happy, live for myself, pursue my ambitions, take care of my needs. But without warning, the city was engulfed in flames in an instant. You see, when God's judgment comes, it's already too late. There is no repentance at that time. There's no asking God for mercy. There's no promising God, okay, Lord, I'll change this time. I'll be different this time. I'll start going to church this time. I'll start reading the Bible this time. I'll start becoming more a better Christian this time. You see, time's up when judgment comes. Game's over. God's judgment is swift and it is certain, but not only is it sudden, it is also complete, his judgment. You see, all the people living in Sodom and Gomorrah, the entire fertile plain, everyone and everything obliterated, gone. Everything died. Everyone died. All the cities, all the walls, all the ornate buildings, the temples, and the city halls were all wiped out. In fact, in verse 25, it says this, even all the vegetation in the land perished. Verse 
on judgment day, there's nowhere to hide. There's no place where you can hide where God's mighty arm cannot reach. No bunker, no siege vault, no White House basement. Nothing in this world will be safe from God's ultimate judgment. But not only was it sudden, not only was it complete, but it was also horrifying. Jonathan Edwards said this, The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in a storm of fire and brimstone was but a shadow of the destruction of ungodly men in hell and is not more to it than a shadow or a picture is to a reality or that a painted fire is to real fire. What is Edward saying here? He's saying this, that the judgment that Christ will bring at his second coming, the scope of devastation his judgment will bring will be beyond our comprehension. Just like no movie can accurately depict, as much as Mel Gibson tried to do it with the passion of Christ, cannot accurately depict the crucifixion of Jesus, no movie, nothing will ever have enough CGI and come near the scope of the actual savagery of God's destruction upon the wicked. In fact, even Jesus said that it will be so devastating, that it will be so dreadful, that people during that time of judgment will pray, God, let the mountains fall on me. In other words, they're saying this. They're saying it's better to be buried alive than to face the wrath of God. And look, I'll tell you why this is a hard sermon to prepare for. Because God, he really checked me this time. He asked me, David, what sense of urgency do you have about my business? He asked me, what sense of deep concern do you have for the way that you live? You may be expressing holiness, but inwardly, where's the fruit? Inwardly, where are the changes in your life? Inwardly, where is the evidence of the Holy Spirit living and flourishing in your life? Yes, you may say good things. Yes, you may attend life groups. Yes, you may preach. But you know what? Give me the inner evidence. And he said, David, are you living with the eternal perspective that judgment is coming and that people need to hear the gospel? But you know, as devastating as God's judgment is for the Christian, for the Christian, for the believer, the sight of King Jesus coming will be the greatest will be the most amazing, will be the most joy-filled sight you'll ever see. For your Savior has come to bring you home. But for the unbeliever, the sight of Judge Jesus will be the most terrifying sight they'll ever see. So for those who are in Christ, we don't need to fear, but we do need to fear for others' sake. The annual love festival where we consider a person, where we like to bring a person, where we consider praying for a person, that's not enough. The gospel must always be at the tip of our tongues, people. Anywhere we go, everywhere we go, we must be at all times ready and willing to speak the very words that will lead a, a damned, condemned person into the sweet embrace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let me all tell you something here. You and I are held to an even higher standard, higher level of accountability for Christ said to the towns of Galilee that it would be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than for them. Why would Jesus say that to them and why does that apply to us? He said because they had seen Jesus. They had heard his teachings. They had seen his miracles and they had witnessed his works and yet did not believe. 
They would reject being his disciples. And so on Judgment Day, their refusal to believe, their rejection of Jesus, despite all the visual, all the scientific and physical proof of his deity and authenticity, will end up condemning them, making Sodom's sins look like child's play. And folks, we have not seen Jesus, but we have evidence And we have experience to know Jesus more intimately than anyone else in the past. But beyond that, we have the amazing gift of faith. Oh, but Pastor Dave, if I could only see Jesus, if he could just come down here with his lightning bolt, and and you're probably thinking of Zeus right now. You're probably thinking, if he could just prove himself. Well, you see, Christ showed himself to the people who walked with him, and yet they didn't believe. So how, why do you think Christ showing himself to you would do anything better or more? Because, you see, we are, you have to understand we've been saved through faith, not by sight. Brothers and sisters, friends, let me ask you this. What is God saying to us today regarding this point? We need to check our hearts. Make sure that you are walking with Christ and not the world. Ask yourself these questions. Are you in the world or are you in Christ? Do you want more of the things of the world? Or do you want more of the things of Christ? And do you want people saved? Or like Sodom, are you apathetic? Are you indifferent, just complacent with where you are in life? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves today in light of God's coming judgment that will be sudden, that will be complete, and that will be horrific. As a believer, you don't need to fear, but we need to fear for the sake of others who are not saved. So let's start reaching out. Let's start reaching out. Let's start sharing the good news. If you have the cure to cancer, why would you keep it to yourself? Let's start sharing the good news. Don't make it an annual thing. Don't make it a monthly thing. Make it a, make it a life thing. My second and last point is this, that God's judgment will test even the righteous. God's judgment will, will test even the righteous. Now in this passage, it wasn't written, it was, wasn't written primarily as a warning for those who are against God, a.k.a. the wicked. It also serves as instruction for the people of God. Okay, so the oversimplified popular belief is that on Judgment Day, God saves the good guys and God condemns or he judges the bad guys. We have the good guys and we have the bad guys. The problem is this. If you read this chapter, there really doesn't seem to be any good guys. I mean, God delivers Lot, but it certainly wasn't because he deserved it. You know, it's interesting that in the book of 2 Peter, we read that Lot was considered a righteous dude. Not dude, man. But it's also clear that Lot's work, his work, his, what he's produced, it didn't look so righteous. But that's where the gospel presents itself, because who actually has righteous works in their lives? If you do, can you raise your hand? I don't. And I preach for a living. The answer is no one. God applies the righteousness of Jesus to those who trust him. Remember, we're not righteous, we're sinful. And honestly, even after we get saved, some of our sinful actions don't immediately change, does it? But not only that, through Christ we become sanctified, which means this, that the wickedness around us should make us more and more uncomfortable. It should make us more and more uncomfortable. Because God has given us a spirit of holiness, but even in that new and transformed life, we still make mistakes, don't we? 
So Lot was righteous because God saved him. You see, that's how it always goes. God has to do the saving. But again, even in that saving, Lot, he didn't do everything right. In fact, he failed miserably. Turn to your neighbor and say this, Lot messed up again. Because when judgment came, Lot was tested, and he was pretty much found useless. I know. I was just trying to think of a nicer way to say it. If you're confused, let me talk about this here for a second. Apostle Paul, he clarifies it for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to me when I say this, when he talks about the righteous on judgment day. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is exactly what happened to Lot. Because through judgment, God will test the works of our righteousness. He will test the work of the righteous. So let me explain. Lot had a problem. He loved the world. He loved the world. Look, we know what the Bible tells us. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world and his desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So where was Lot in all this? He just loved the passing world too much. In fact, he loved it so much, his attraction for it grew and grew and grew, and he embraced Sodom more and more and more. Remember in chapter 13, Lot looked longingly towards Sodom, and he saw the desirability of Sodom. So where did he pitch his tent? It said he pitched his tent near Sodom, right? Do you remember that? Then chapter 14, without any explanation, we find out that he was living in Sodom. Then fast forward, chapter 19, Lot's not only living in Sodom, but now he's sitting at the gate, which means this, he's taking ownership, responsibility of Sodom. Because now he's risen to a place of power and prominence. He's governing Sodom. Deeper and deeper and deeper into the world. And then we find in verses 6 through 8, when the lustful mob was harassing Lot's guests, What did Lot do? He showed his love for the world by doing something so completely out of his mind, at least it's it's out of our mind. I don't know how he could have made sense of this because what's crazy is sin will do something really weird to a person. It will twist your mind. It will make things that are right seem wrong and things that are wrong seem right. In verses 6 to 8, the mob is at Lot's door, banging away, saying, get us in. Get those guys out here. They want to gang rape the guests. That's what knowing them means, to have sexual relationship. And so, listen to what Lot says to them. Brothers, or in other words, friends, like Steve, like, I'm, I know you guys. You guys know me. He's friends with these people, and he's assuming he can talk them out of their demands. And so as his friends belligerently demand Lot's guests to be handed over so they can rape them, we find that what Lot does next is really just, it just boggles your mind. And really just shows that he's really not too different from the mob 
as he offers to give them his daughters. Instead of his guests, he offers to give them his daughters to be gang raped. Because you know, Lot wanted to be a good host to the strangers. Does it sound twisted? Because it is. Get this. The only way he thought to fulfill his obligation of hospitality to protect his guests was to betray an even more sacred obligation, and that was to protect his family. As a father to a little girl, Lot's actions disgust me to my very core. But that's what sin does to people. When someone shoots up a school, we ask, what would possess someone to do that? It's sin. When a mother takes her and her children's life, we ask, what would possess someone to do that? It's sin. When an adult male visits a brothel filled with young boys and girls, we would say, what would possess a person to do that? It is sin. Sin distorts everything, and that's what Lot did here. But that's what happens when you immerse yourself deeper and deeper into the world while becoming more shallow in your relationship with God. You see, then darkness becomes a greater presence in your life. That's what sin does. And the light of God grows a little bit dimmer. And so this was a disgusting form of compromise because Lot was obviously a friend of the world. And in verse 15, we really see how off Lot was or has become because the angels, they come. And they urge Lot, run away. It reads, a morning, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away by the punishment of the city. And so what does Lot do? He goes, oh my goodness, absolutely. Let me grab my family. Let me grab my Bible. I didn't have a Bible back then, right? Good riddance to this place. This place was just horrific. It was hopeless. It was sinful. I need to live quickly. No. Does he do that? Instead, he, what? Lingers. He hesitates. He can't bring himself to leave. He's thinking, how can I leave my home? How can I leave this wonderful place? We live in such a good area with lots of bars and lots of attractions. How can I abandon the friends that I've made over the years? Remember all the good times that we've had over those nights at the bar? It's craziness. He's lingering. He's hesitating. His concern should be for the coming judgment, but it's hard for him to leave because he's totally become a friend of the world and he has gone deeper and deeper and deeper into the life of Sodom. And I think a lot of us here are dealing with that too. The sins of the world are never as blurry and obvious as we like to think it is. Sin is more like a daily, consistent intake of poison. You see, adultery typically stems from things like pornography. Rarely does a man just simply go and cheat. It first begins with flirting with the idea through pornography. Rarely does a person jump into heavy drugs. Many times it begins with alcohol addiction or harmless drugs like marijuana. Many, and, and some people, <clears throat> rarely do some people just hate on individuals. It always starts with some small element of bitterness, doesn't it? A bitterness that you're unwilling to let go of and repent of. And that bitterness only grows and grows and festers until it overtakes our minds, overtakes our hearts, overtakes our spirit. I'm not saying anyone here has fallen off the edge, but I think many of us here are flirting with it. Because we're getting a little bit too complacent, a little bit too comfortable with the sins in our lives. And if you don't kill it, it will kill you. 
So finally the angels grab them by the hands and lead them out of the city. But even then, Lot's commitment to the world doesn't end. You see, when the angels get them out of the city and tell them, hey, here is my godly suggestion. Flee to the cities. This isn't negotiable. Lot says, can we negotiate for a second here? There's a nice little town right there. Can I go and live there? Do you see what's happening here with Lot? Despite the obvious and impending judgment, even though it's clear that God hated the city and all that stood for, even though it was apparent to Lot that God was judging the very city that he was fleeing from, Lot says, can I still have my little city? I need my little Sodom again because I don't think I can live without it. Now let's think about the context here. Moses wrote this account down as the people of God, the Israelites, were about to enter the promised land. I'll tell you why. Because the Israelites were about to enter into an area where they're going to get tempted by the Canaanites, by their culture, by their way of living, by their society, by their rules, by their religion. You see, when we become friends of the world, you only get heartache because the world is empty and cannot offer you anything but loss. So that's why Moses is saying, saying to his people, look at Lot. Look at what happens when you chase after the world. You see, when judgment came, what happened to Lot? He lost everything. He lost his home. Remember, he was a high official, probably made a good living, probably had a really nice house. He lost his prominent position, all the years of networking, all the years of working hard and striving, all down the drain. He lost all his friends. No one was left after the judgment. He lost his sons-in-laws. This is what happens when you live for the world and not God. When Lot tried to warn them about God's judgment, they laughed at him. They laughed at him. This is also what will happen to us if we raise our children to constantly pursue after the successes of the world and disregard God's word because when it's too late, they too will laugh at us. He lost his wife. She had to stop. She had to look back longingly, and when she did, destruction caught up with her. You see, Lot, he just escaped with his shirt on his back. Everything he had built with his life, all those years in Sodom, everything, everyone was gone. Everything he had accomplished was no more. This is what God's judgment will do to us. It will test what you have invested in. It will test what you have poured your life into. The work of God will stand, but the work of the world will fade and disappear. God is asking you today, what are you spending your life on? What are you spending your life on? What are you building in your life? Again, this is not an order. This is not about an order to be an effective Christian. You need to become a pastor or a church worker. In fact, I, I believe that many pastors will have to give an account for building a business rather than a church because many pastors have lost sight of their calling for treating congregation members as customers rather than as sheep and as family. So whether you're in the professional world or in school, whether you have friends that you meet with on a weekly basis or friends that you only text with, the question still remains, what kind of kingdom are you building for them? What kind of kingdom are you building for your family? The world's kingdom where you sit at the head or the heavenly kingdom where God is at the head. You see, the downfall of Sodom, it began with arrogance. It began with being overfed and complacent, being unconcerned for the needy, but also an increasing tolerance towards the perversions of today. You see, this isn't a message about doing more and trying harder. This is a message about who are you following? Are you following after God? 
Or are you following after the world? Are you pursuing after the things of the world? Or the things of God? Are you following after Jesus? Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. While the unbelieving world will cower and run away with futility at God's judgment, the righteous, you will be tested by fire. And maybe today God's testing you, people. You may know Jesus. You may have a relationship with him, but are you building up your foundation in the world or upon his word? Because when the inevitable fire judgment come raining down, when the trials and the tribulations of life come at you, only the work of Christ and the work of righteousness will stand where all other things will be gone. So what are you investing in today? What are you building up today? So what happened to Abraham? Remember how he was so talkative yesterday or the other day? Asking God, how is it fair? You're trying to wipe out this entire city? It's filled with so many, many righteous people. What is he doing now? In verse 27 we read, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. Abraham, who had so much to say yesterday, is silent. And so how does the story end? In verse 29 we read that for the sake of Abraham, God was merciful to Lot, even though Lot, even though he lost everything by fire. And brothers and sisters, this is where I'm ending. We may lose everything by fire today, but for the sake of Jesus, because of Jesus, though we may lose everything, God will be merciful, and he will deliver us into safety. What's our only choice but to place our faith in Christ today more than you did yesterday and tomorrow. Place more faith in him then than you will today. Let your faith in Jesus grow daily. Daily. And though you may face intense heat, intense fires of judgment and trials, you will leave unscathed. Because for those of us who are in Christ, you will find mercy and grace. You will. And that's God's promise. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you. Because knowing that your love is real, your forgiveness is real, your grace and your mercy is real, helps us to realize and understand that your judgment's real too. Because, Lord God, if you're mighty to save, then we have to ask ourselves what are you saving us from? You're saving us from damnation. You're saving us from sin. You're saving us from a life that we would otherwise gladly just walk into, a life that's completely rebellious and disobedient and against you in every way possible. But in your mercy and grace, you've given us your son, Jesus, who was our savior. You are the one who plucked us out of that pit of despair. You're the one who chose us and saved us. What would we have done throughout our lives? One day would we just have said, you know what, I'm going to surrender my life to you. No, 
God, you drew us to you. But Lord, I pray right now that as judgment has become more of a reality in our lives now, I pray after this sermon, you would also give urgency more of a reality in our lives too. That we would go forth and share the message of God's good message of Jesus Christ. That all who believe in him will be saved. We are simply the messengers. It's not up to us for that person to come to know you're not. That's up to you, but Lord, you have given us a task. You have asked us to be agents. And maybe also right now we've, we're dealing with a lot of dis- dis- prejudice against particular groups of people. Maybe, we just ha- maybe we're holding a lot of, harboring a lot of, a lot of bitterness and anger towards the gay community or towards maybe just another prodigal version, whoever might be in your life. Pray that you remind us, Lord, that there is no sin too great that you can't forgive. For though you are a just God, you are also a forgiving God. If you could save a wretch like me, Father, you can save anyone. Give us the tools of compassion and love, Lord, when we reach out. Equip us with grace and mercy. Not just truth, but grace, mercy, compassion, love, and truth. Brothers and sisters, I want to give you an opportunity just to pray and to meditate on what you've heard today. Let's pray, and we'll go into our last song.